0: This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Let's call it the couch cushion dash. This is the moment when you need a tip for the pizza man, a few bucks for your kid's lunch, or you can't say no to the sweet eight-year-old and her thin mints. But you've got no cash and no other options but to tear apart the house, searching for hidden money. It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage. And it's funny how we can usually find a way to scrounge together a few bucks hidden around our house. Shame on you if it's from your kids' piggy banks. For many listeners, though, there's enough money sitting inside your home to buy a swimming pool full of Thin Mints. Home values have gone up across the country the last few years, leaving many of us with a good chunk of equity tucked inside our homes that we could cash out to use for life. If you'd like us to help, we or United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to NMLS Consumer Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. In 2018,
1: Israel welcomed 4.1 million international tourists. In 2019, the numbers swelled to 4.6 million. 2020 started with a bang, and then, well, coronavirus happened, and everything shut down. So, when will Israel reopen to travelers, and how has the tourism industry managed to survive? What about the impact of the current flare-up we've been seeing? Get the bigger picture next on this week's edition of The Land and the Book, Welcome, I'm John Gager, across from our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert and frequent Israel traveler. I know you're chomping at the bit to get back, Charlie, but wow, what a week it's been uh, over in Israel.
0: Oh, it has been amazing. You know, for a news junkie like me, uh, it's been morning tonight just watching Uh, reading, doing everything I can to figure out what's happening over there. It's been incredible. Well, after almost two weeks of
1: intense fighting between Israel and Hamas, the situation might, and I underscore might, finally be winding down. Help us understand exactly what happened. Why did the fighting start in the first place? Were war crimes committed, as some have claimed, and perhaps most significantly? How did the fighting impact ordinary citizens on both sides?
0: You know, as we said last week, the conflict came from the perfect storm of political and religious events, you know, from the canceling of the Palestinian elections, to the end of Ramadan, to Jerusalem Day for the Jews, to a housing dispute in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, to tensions that have been simmering over the pandemic for over a year. But here's the point that's gotten lost in all the reporting. The fighting started when Muslims on the Temple Mount began throwing rocks at pedestrians and cars below. That's what prompted Israel's security forces to go up on the Temple Mount. They were responding to a disturbance caused by the Muslim rioters. Hamas then began firing rockets into Israel, making demands and setting deadlines for Israel to back down. Israel responded to the rocket attacks by launching its bombing campaign against Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. Now, I believe the rioters on the Temple Mount are responsible for the disturbances in Jerusalem. And I believe Hamas is responsible for what happened in Gaza by launching missiles at civilian population centers in Israel. Israel does have a right to defend itself, but we need to keep saying that over and over again. Now, were war crimes committed? I think the answer probably is yes, but they were not committed by Israel. Hamas deliberately targeted Israeli civilians. That's a war crime. And Hamas embedded its weapons and military centers inside civilian areas using civilians as human shields to protect them. That's also a war crime. Israel didn't deliberately launch attacks against civilians. Sadly, some civilians in Gaza were killed, though not all by Israel. Many of Hamas's rockets misfired and landed in the Gaza Strip, causing some of the casualties. The last part of your question, John, is perhaps the most significant, though all too often, it's the ordinary citizens who suffer. Mm. Uh, We've seen images of the devastation in Israel and in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a friend who lives in Ashkelon, one of the Israeli cities that's been repeatedly hit by these Hamas rockets. Uh, We wrote to her, letting her know we were praying for her, and her response put a human face on the situation. Uh, She wrote back saying, in part, the last days have been quite hectic, All of my family are safe physically, though totally exhausted emotionally. It's hard to describe, and I don't wish anyone, especially my dear friends, to have to go through the same. It was probably the strongest feeling of fear in all my life. Nevertheless, we do not surrender. Now, I'd encourage anyone who's listening to be praying for those who've gone through this time of terror, both Arabs and Jews and pray especially for believers. Ask God to give them opportunities to share the good news of the gospel of peace that can only come through faith in Jesus. In addition to the bombs and rockets that landed in Gaza and Israel,
1: there were also instances of rioting and fighting in a number of places in Israel and the West Bank. What caused this unrest and what impact will it have on relations between Arabs and Jews?
0: Yeah, as one individual said, the riots were actually more concerning in Israel than the rockets. About 20% of Israel's population is Arab, and the large majority of them are Muslim. Hamas appealed to them to rise up against Israel to defend their Muslim brothers and the Al Aqsa Mosque. It was a strong appeal to put race and religion ahead of their role as citizens in the state of Israel. And sadly, some did respond to the appeal, with riots breaking out in a number of ethnically mixed communities. Synagogues, stores, and homes were firebombed. Uh, Some lost their lives at the hand of angry mobs. Those images raised the same feelings of race and religion on the part of some extremist Jews, and they took to the streets to seek revenge. Arab homes and shops and mosques were destroyed, and several Arabs were killed the police finally imposed curfews and arrested those identified as ringleaders. Uh, Tuesday, the Palestinian Authority tried to use the unrest to its advantage, calling on both Palestinians and Israeli Arabs to join in a day of rage. And protests did pop up in both Israel and the West Bank. This is the same kind of polarization we're seeing in our country as groups give in to anger and hate and take the law into their own hands. Prime Minister Netanyahu took a strong stand against actions from both sides, calling it terrorism and saying it had to be stopped. Mm. A number of spontaneous demonstrations against the violence and hatred sprang up throughout Israel as ordinary citizens responded in horror to the scenes. But as another friend wrote, this kind of stuff will take years to fix, if not decades. I do need to mention one bright spot that we would tend to overlook. Mansour Abbas, the leader of the Islamic Ra'am party, has taken a strong stand against the violence. He met with the Jewish mayor of Lod, one of the cities where rioting first occurred, and vowed to help rebuild the synagogues that were torched. He's called for greater Arab-Jewish cooperation over the past few months, and he's continuing to push for reviving peaceful relations between the two groups. He's also received harsh criticism from some within his own party for this stand. But right now, he's showing good leadership as someone who wants to be a peacemaker. And I hope more Arab and Jewish leaders follow his example. Moody Radio's The Land and the Book joins you today,
1: and I hope you're having a good day. We're looking at current events. I'm John Geiger with our Middle East expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. The conflict, Charlie, has also impacted Yair Lapid's efforts to form an anti-Netanyahu coalition government. Will he still be able to cobble together a coalition before the deadline expires on June 2? And if he can't, well, what happens next?
0: Yeah, he has to be shaking his head saying, what in the world happened? A week ago, it was virtually certain that Lapid and Naftali Bennett would be leading a new government, with Bennett serving first as prime minister, but their coalition was dependent on support from the Islamist Ra'am party. And while Mansour Abbas, who heads that party, has, as I said, demonstrated great statesmanship, the fight with Hamas, as well as the internal struggles between Jews and Arabs in Israel, has been a wake-up call to many Jewish parties, they're now concerned about joining a more left-leaning government that would be less able to confront external and internal threats from Arab Muslims. So Bennett announced he was withdrawing from the coalition talks, and without his support, it's virtually impossible for Lapide to cobble together a coalition. Now, it's too early to know what will happen, but it's likely that Lapid's gonna be forced to return the mandate to form a government on June 2, if not before. The next step in the process is for the president to turn the matter over to the Knesset to see if anyone there can form a government. They have three weeks to try and do that. If that fails, then Israel would be heading to still another round of elections. Wow. Now there, yeah, there, there are already quiet negotiations taking place to form a right-wing government with Likud, Bennett, uh, Gideon Sa'ar, along with Blue and White and religious parties. Uh, Various combinations have been floated, with uh, Gideon Sa'ar, Benny Gantz, Naftali Bennett, all being suggested as possible candidates for prime minister in rotation with Netanyahu. But right now, most of this is simply speculation. I do look for those who vowed never to serve with Netanyahu, to find a way to uh, back off from that red line, climb down from that tree because of all this recent unrest. Uh, We thought the election drama was over, but the next four weeks could take Israel into totally uncharted political territory. Charlie, a rotating prime minister situation, that doesn't seem practical at all. It's not practical, but that's what they had for this last government with uh, Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, uh, supposedly going to uh, be alternate prime ministers. Uh, The problem is when you start having three and four and five individuals, (laughs) uh, some of whom only have a few seats in Knesset, it's hard to imagine how all that will fall into place.
1: Well, one final issue in this somewhat unusual current events segment. Did Iran play any role in the fighting that just took place? And if so, why didn't they encourage Hezbollah to join in the attack against Israel from the north? while Israel
0: was busy fighting in the South. Yeah, they did help train and arm Hamas. Yeah, From the addition of drones in this latest conflict to the design of the rockets that were capable of going deeper into Israel, those additions have Iran's fingerprints all over them. They also issued public statements in support of Hamas, called to congratulate Hamas on their efforts as well. But Iran's help was somewhat limited because of the coastal blockade Israel maintained on Gaza. Now, why didn't they have Hezbollah join the fighting? The answer probably is that they were concerned about the economic sanctions crippling their economy and they want those sanctions lifted. They want to be able to move forward in their nuclear developments, so they need to have the U.S. rejoin the nuclear agreement. Uh, Their involvement is uh, basically rather cynical. Uh, They didn't get Hezbollah involved because they need to have the U.S. lift those economic sanctions. Charlie, appreciate
1: your bringing some clarity to all that we've been seeing on television and online. Thanks for that look at current events. Up next is Israeli tourism, yesterday, today, and tomorrow on The Land and the Book. In 2018, Israel welcomed 4.1 million international tourists. That number, by the way, 4.1 million, represents a growth of 14% over 2017. Now, in 2019, the numbers swelled to a record 4.55 million tourists. 2020 started with a bang, and then, well, you know what happened Coronavirus happened. Well, what has happened since? When will Israel reopen to travelers? How has the tourism industry managed to survive even? I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. We're going to talk all about that and more after we talk about something much more important, sharing Yeshua with our Jewish friends and neighbors right here at home. So we know that evangelism is going on in America, evangelism that even targets Jewish people. How's it going? Just how effective is it? Eva Rydelnik is an adjunct faculty member at the Moody Bible Institute. What's your assessment, Eva?
2: Well, I think that there are a lot of people who are out there, a lot of people who love the Lord Jesus, who are out there talking to people, their friends, their neighbors about Jesus. And I think that it's very effective. You know, what you need to do, Jesus certainly is the good news for everybody. And God promises word wouldn't return void. And I think that there are people, Jewish and non-Jewish, who are coming to put their faith in Jesus because of the good testimony of people who love him and are out there sharing the good news. Tell me a story that you've
1: heard recently that said— Man, that's neat. That shows that God is alive and well and working in the Jewish people, too.
2: Right. I have a a friend down in Florida who has um, been praying for her cousin for 35 years, a Jewish friend praying for her cousin for 35 years to come to faith. Mm. We've talked to this fellow lots and lots of times over the years. 35 years. That's kind of a long time, right? Long haul. About two weeks ago, he came to faith in Jesus. Wow. And it was just through that persistent witness of members of his family who had come to faith in Messiah, this Jewish man, members of his family who had come to faith in Messiah, and his Christian neighbors who were loving to him and caring for him. And I think that's a great encouragement for us not to give up, that we may think, oh, it's been a long time. But in God's time clock, we need to keep on talking and trust him for the fruit. You used two words there, persistent
1: witness. Those are keys that I want to walk away with, persistent witness. Eva Rydelnik is an adjunct faculty member at the Moody Bible Institute. David Katz was born and raised in suburban California, just east of San Francisco. In the summer of 1977, he traveled to Israel for the very first time to work on a kibbutz in the center of the country. It was a bit of a jolt for him, as you can imagine. In spite of the challenges, David knew then that Israel, in fulfillment of what he believed to be the promise of the law and the prophets, was in fact his destiny. So in 1992, David and his wife and their two small kids made Israel their permanent home, and there two more children were born. In 1995, David joined what at the time was a very small staff at a company called Sarel Tours, founded by Samuel and Susan Smaja. And for more than 26 years, David, along with the rest of the Sarel staff, has served hundreds of thousands of Christian visitors to Israel myself among them. And it's good to welcome David Katz to today's edition of The Land and the Book, where we're going to look at Israel tourism yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Not in any way to be blasphemous to Scripture itself, but welcome to The Land and the Book, David. Thank
3: you, John. I appreciate you having me with you.
1: Well, you know, just anecdotally, what did tourism feel like to you just before COVID hit? There we were in January and February of last year. What were things like?
3: well we didn't stop i wasn't home none of our staff were home at that time we had a staff of about 120 people at SARL. and when you compare that to what our staff was when i started 26 years ago we were five people so in 25 years we grew to a staff of 120 people and we weren't enough to get all the work done people were working day and night Every single one of our guides was working back to back. The hotels were full. The buses didn't stop running. The sites were full. It was an exciting, wonderful, and exhausting time. (laughs) And we expected that the rest of the year would be like that as well until this terrible epidemic, pandemic called Corona fell over the world and we came to a halting stop like we've never seen before. So let
1: me ask you now on the other side, at the lowest point, what were your numbers like? 10%, 5%, 1%? I mean, what was that like for Sarrel?
3: Of, of tourists? Yeah. We came to 0%. In the middle of March of 2020, we had no tourists left in the country. One of our very last groups was that led by Brenda McCord, who you, of course, know, Brenda and Walt yeah. McCord. Yeah. And then I escorted Brenda and the ladies who were traveling with her to the airport to see them off. They were one of the very last tour groups in the country. Hmm. And from that time on, mid-March 2020, we have not seen a single tourist in the country since then.
1: Hmm. So I have to ask the obvious question. How is Sarrel, how is the entire tourism surviving? What are all these hotel workers and bus drivers and guides <laughs> doing to make money? <laughs>
3: Well, we're surviving on air. We're also surviving on unemployment fees that we're receiving from the government. Fortunately, we all pay high taxes here, and we've all been paying into our Social Security all of these years. And fortunately, we are getting partial salaries through our Social Security. Hmm. Um, there is a skeleton staff at SRL, and we're living off the good years. Yeah. We're living off the good years, and now we're in the sort of like Joseph and the <laughs> warehouses in Egypt, right? Yeah.
1: The lean years, the, the fat cows have eaten but up. But
3: there, there, are, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who were once employed by the tourism industry who have not had work for 13 mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm.
1: We're talking with David Katz, Deputy General Manager at Sarel Tours Tourism Conferences. Uh, What is Israel doing to help prepare for the reopening of the country to tourists?
3: Well, even as early as last summer, uh, the hotels started reopening for Israelis. So there were very, very strict and effective procedures put into receiving Israeli guests into the hotels. Uh, Limited number of people, for example, the staff was cleaning and recleaning and recleaning. And of course, everyone had to have their masks. Just recently, most of our hotels, or many of our hotels, I should say, have started reopening for Israeli guests just before Passover. That was a good time for Israeli hotels to reopen, though many others didn't reopen just out of the thought that we'd have to close again or that it wouldn't be worthwhile for them to close and then close again after Passover. But the hotels are starting to work again for Israeli guests again. One has to have a mask, one has to have proof of being vaccinated, and there are less people in the hotel. The dining room is run differently, but we have started seeing Israeli guests returning to the hotels, which is great. It's getting some money back into the hotel economy, and it's preparing us for the return of foreign guests, which just yesterday was announced that foreign guests will start being received back in Israel from 23rd May. Now they're going to be, it's going to be a very controlled environment for those foreign guests. Not everyone is going to be allowed back in right now. It'll start with needing proof of having been vaccinated and it will be slowly. And I actually think that's a good way to get us back yeah. moving so that God willing by September, October, there will be less restrictions. Corona will be more under control and we'll be able to start welcoming our guests back. And just for your knowledge, John, you may already know, Israel is doing a great job in getting corona under control. Yes. We're seeing the numbers go down every single day, which is very encouraging. And of course, we need to make sure that continues to happen. So the regulations will be stringent at first for returning guests. And hopefully, as corona starts getting under control throughout the world, especially in the United States, where so many of our our favorite guests come from that uh, we'll be able to start welcoming you all back. Yeah.
1: I, uh, I read that the largest percentage of tourists come from the following countries, Uh, the USA accounting for, again, this is pre COVID accounting for about 19% Mm -hmm. of all tourists followed by Russia, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, China, Italy, Poland, and Canada. Um, Not all of those countries are attacking, approaching this virus equally. So what does that say for Israel's receptivity to their return to tourism inside the U.S.? What are the, what are the problem countries, or, and, and what are those that uh, Israel, I suspect, feels a little bit more comfortable with?
3: Israel certainly feels comfortable with allowing Americans to start coming back. And again, at first, people will have to prove that they've been vaccinated. I believe there will also be advanced testing, which will begin at the airports, Countries that don't have corona under control, then obviously the reception of those guests is going to be delayed until those countries do have more control. You mentioned China, and we all know that actually China has got this under control quite well. The reports I hear from China is that things are a lot cleaner there than a lot of other places. Hong Kong, Taiwan, those are also potential countries that we can start receiving back. Australia, New Zealand, if those countries will allow their people to travel. Also, that's another question. But our, our first target, our expected uh, first group of guests to come back is certainly from the United States. David Katz is Deputy
1: General Manager at Sarel Tours in Israel. And we're looking at Israeli tourism pre COVID and uh, today and in the future as well yesterday, today, and tomorrow. How quickly does Israel anticipate tourism returning to some semblance of, quote, near normal levels?
3: near normal to what we left off of in March of 2020. I think it's going to take some time, John. Um, I'm optimistic that by September, October, we will start seeing a good flow of our guests coming back. We have people that are just waiting to come. The tickets are booked. People have their passports. People are doing what they need to do to prepare to come back. And I sure hope that by the spring of 2022, we'll start seeing you all coming back without limitations. Great. Well, how has the struggle to get a stable
1: coalition government impacted Israel's ability to develop a plan for tourism? Is that a factor?
3: (laughs) Very difficult, probably as difficult as corona. But you know, somehow, and I'm not quite sure how it is, but in my 30 years of life in Israel, actually a little more, Somehow we have always continued to function with or without a functioning government. So I imagine that Israeli ingenuity, we're just going to get past a functioning or non-functioning government, because as you know, right now we don't have one. Yeah. Well,
1: obviously, I think uh, any thinking person as they anticipate traveling to Israel would say, all right, you know, proof of vaccination is likely to be, uh, you know, a factor. And then, uh, you know, there'll be uh, less density population-wise in the hotels and meal times likely to be different. Any other new surprises that uh, tourists can expect when they are allowed back into the country, at least initially?
3: Well, all of our sites are already reopened, all the national parks. And as I think that you know, through your work with Dr. Charlie Dyer, new sites are being developed on a regular basis. The City of David continues to find new artifacts. And as you just mentioned, those who start coming back to us in September, October, November, the sites are going to be yours. And we look forward to being able to celebrate that with those who travel with us uh, later this year in 2021. Surprises. We just want to be surprised at how many of our guests want to come back and are going to do what needs to, to do to comply with the regulations of, of welcoming you all back. Hmm.
1: You know, it's been more than a year, as we've said. So what's being done to retrain guides and drivers after a long absence away from their craft, let alone the addition of, you know, coronavirus uh, restrictions?
3: Well, I hate to say it, but nothing's been done to train anyone, the amount of people unemployed was just so high and there wasn't alternative work for any of these people. Some people have found other things or had other things to do. You know, some are good at building decks and pergolas on the, you know, the balcony. So maybe they did that, but unfortunately, most people sat at home over the past year living on a very reduced salary. And it's been a real, real tough time for everyone hey i'm gonna i'm gonna quiz you now here you are with sarel tours do
1: you know in 2017 what the most popular paid tourist attraction was in
3: israel uh, no i don't so i'll let you tell me but i'm gonna I, I would i would try to guess city of david or western wall tunnel the most popular paid tourist
1: attraction is masada hm at least as of 2017. Well, thanks for giving me that that bit of (laughs) trivia. That's good to know. Hey, in 30 seconds, what can believers here in the USA do to support tourism now while COVID is still kind of hanging on?
3: Well, if you want to come and we want you to come, we will be very, very happy to welcome you back in the coming months. If for whatever reason, you're not comfortable with traveling in the immediate coming months, then start planning for 2022, even 2023. And we'll be here to welcome you.
1: That's David Katz, Deputy General Manager at SARL Tours and Conferences. Uh, a link to uh, SARL's website will be at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today from Israel, David. We're looking forward to being over there sometime.
3: Thank you, John. We look forward to having you all back with
1: us. All right. Coming up on The Land and the Book, a fresh set of questions. Maybe one of them is yours here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for being our friend here at The Land and the Book. You must be a friend if you stuck around this far. I'm John Gager with our host, Charlie Dyer. Segment three, Charlie, is what?
0: Uh, this is when people ask their questions, and I just love it because I get a chance to go back into the Word of God and hopefully give an answer that will make sense to them.
1: And you can get your question to us anytime with a quick email to the land and the Book at moody.edu. Charlie, it takes what, about 30 days, about a month for folks to get a response back from you?
0: Uh, it takes, uh, hopefully, 24 hours. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm less diligent. It may take a couple of days if something's going on, but my goal is to try and get answers out within 24 hours. I, I just hate having things in my inbox.
1: Well, you do a terrific job. I, I watch each and every question coming in and going out, and boy, you're, you're on top of it. So let's dig into today's stack of questions, starting with Nancy's. She takes us to the book of Job. At the end, the Lord tells Eliphaz and his two friends, he is angry with them for not speaking of me what is right. This is God's speaking here. The Lord tells Eliphaz to make a sacrifice, and Job will pray for them. That's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Here's the question: What happened to Elihu, the youngest friend? Does he get punished or corrected in any way?
0: Yeah, and I believe the answer is that Elihu wasn't judged by God because he really didn't say anything wrong or incorrect about Job or about God. You know, as he's introduced in chapter 32, it says Elihu was very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Elihu quotes Job's complaint about God not seeming to be just, and and he says, in this you're not right, for God is greater than man. He's telling Job to focus on the greatness and grandeur of God, but he also condemns the three friends. He says, I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. In the book of Job, I see Elihu serving as the bridge, between the debate of Job and his friends, and the appearance by God. He's trying to get Job to acknowledge this majesty of God, and that's what Job finally does once God appears. God's message to Job mirrors many of the themes raised by Elihu, and that's why God doesn't condemn him. Elihu doesn't try to convince Job he was a wicked sinner. He simply tried to get Job to realize God was far greater than even Job comprehended. And Job had erred when he said, I'm innocent, but God denies me justice. And so in that sense, I think he plays a vital role in the book and, and doesn't get condemned as a result.
1: Tom listens to us Sundays on WIHS 104.9 in Middletown, Connecticut. Thanks for connecting with us, Tom. And, and he takes us to Christ's entry into Jerusalem, which he says is confusing. Uh, there's a reference to a colt, which seems to be a young horse. So my question is, did he ride on a horse or a donkey?
0: Yeah, and uh, I think the answer to this is uh, the term colt can refer actually to a young horse or to a young donkey. Now, in the original prophecy in Zechariah 9, the prophet actually used several different Hebrew words to describe this animal. Uh, He said the king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he uses the normal Hebrew word for donkey. He he then said the king would sit on a colt using a word that refers to a young male donkey. Uh, Finally, he said the animal is the foal of a donkey. Uh, The word for full is actually the word in Hebrew ben, which is the Hebrew word for son or male offspring. So if I put all of it together, the prophecy saying Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a young male donkey. And in the New Testament accounts of the triumphal entry, the writers use the Greek word anas, which is the word for donkey, rather than the word hippos, which is the word for horse. So it really was a donkey that he was riding on. Peggy
1: listens to us uh, on WGPH out of Vidalia, Georgia. Good news station. Thanks for letting us know where you listen. And she takes us to Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. Two men there mentioned as being demonic, and the Lord delivered them from demonic spirits in Gadara. But in Mark chapter 5, it only references one man, also one man in Luke 8. This was the location of Gadara. Can you explain?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Now, I, I need to do a brief comparison of all three of these gospel accounts. Matthew records one place for the event in his account. Mark and Luke record a different place. It has a similar sounding name, but it's really a different place. Matthew says there were two demoniacs. Uh, Mark and Luke just mentioned the one. So, at first, that sounds like an error in the Bible, but I'm convinced it's not. So, here's how I'd explain it. Uh, Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. And as a result, he recorded the exact spot where the event took place. It's about halfway down the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Mark and Luke wrote to a Gentile audience. They were less familiar with the region, so they recorded the nearest large city near the area that their readers probably would be familiar with. Now, we do the same thing all the time. Uh, Depending on how familiar you are from down there in Georgia with Pennsylvania, I might say I grew up north of Philadelphia, near Bloomsburg, or in Almedia. Now, all are equally true, but they're not equally helpful, are they? The more familiar someone is with the area, the more specific I can be in sharing the details. And and that's what Matthew's doing. Now, in terms of the uh, number of people, Matthew records not only the exact location, he records the exact number of demoniacs who lived among the graves. Those familiar with that location might have even heard fearsome tales about these dangerous men. In contrast, Mark and Luke focus on the one more prominent of the two— Uh, the one through whom the demons were actually speaking. So they focus on the main characters so as not to load down the story with extra details, while Matthew supplies those details because his audience was more likely to know the background. And in that way, I think all three accounts can be perfectly harmonized. Okay, I get it on the locations, but why the difference between
1: two demon-possessed men as opposed to one?
0: Ah, because there really were two demon-possessed individuals, but one of them was the dominant one. One of them was doing all the speaking. Mark and Luke simply focused on the one who did the speaking, not on his compadre. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you.
1: Let's go to Laurie's question in Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, you're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're welcoming your questions any old time. It's great to hear what's on your mind. Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12 Uh, Laurie says, I read these verses, I can't help but wonder if those verses indicate that the Gentiles were without hope of being saved in the Old Testament. 12b says, having no hope without God in the world. No hope at all? Can you explain?
0: Yeah, and I would answer by saying, I think Paul is speaking more practically than theologically. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, We do know that there were Gentiles in the Old Testament who came to faith. Rahab the harlot, uh, Ruth the Moabitess, Naaman the leper. Uh, those are three that just come to mind, and I know there are others. So Paul can't be saying that every single Gentile had no hope and was without God in the world. But practically speaking, God had called Abraham and his descendants to be the light to the nations. It had to be through them that all the world would be blessed. And God's revelation about Himself and how to come to know Him was revealed to the Jewish people to share with others. So Gentiles who lived outside the sphere of contact with Israel really had no knowledge of God's Word or His promises, and in that sense they were without hope.
1: Billy Joe from Stowe, Ohio says, I'm confused about Exodus chapter 4 thought maybe you could help. I just read in the Moody Bible commentary that God was going to kill Moses for not circumcising his son. But why take such a hard stance on this? In the verses before this, Moses is telling God that he can't follow him and do what he asks because he's not good enough, even after God shows Moses signs and wonders. So why, after being so patient,
0: is this the last straw? Uh, Well, this is a difficult passage in a number of ways. But first, it's not clear whom God was trying to kill. While some translations insert Moses's name, he's actually not named in verses 24 and 25. Some believe, and I would tend to agree, that the one God was threatening to kill was Gershom, Moses's oldest son. Moses was being sent to Egypt to announce God's judgment on Pharaoh's firstborn son, but Moses himself had neglected God's command to circumcise his own son. So it's possible this is the reason God intended to kill Moses' firstborn son. Second, it's not clear what Zipporah's words and actions really mean. You know, at first it sounds like she's angry with God and Moses, but that could be a misunderstanding. From what we know historically, the Midianites, and remember, she's a daughter of a Midianite priest, practiced circumcision. So it's possible she understood that she and Moses had disobeyed God by not circumcising their son. So after circumcising him, she touched his feet, which is a euphemism for touching the penis. Now, most have assumed that referred to Moses, but it could more likely be referring to Gershom. She then says, you're a bridegroom of blood. And again, many believe she spoke those words in anger to Moses, but there's another possibility. The word for bridegroom can refer to any relative. The phrase could actually have the idea of blood relative. So she could have been saying in effect to Gershom, you're now a blood relative in the sense of being officially part of the covenant community. Now, back to my point, this is a difficult passage, but in spite of those uncertainties, I think the overall meaning is clear. God was calling Moses to deliver a stern message of judgment to Pharaoh that would end in the death of his firstborn son. And yet Moses hadn't even obeyed God's command in regard to his own son. God's anger at Moses' disobedience was satisfied when Zipporah obeyed and circumcised her son, bringing him into the covenant community.
1: Wow. Uh, That's a great explanation. Charlie, thank you for your diligence and your scholarship as you answer these questions week after week. I want to make two quick observations about our podcast. One, that so many people are enjoying it. It's amazing how many people listen sometimes exclusively on the podcast. My other thought is, why aren't more? It's there and anybody in the world can listen. Check out that podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional next. So, when you travel, do you take a ton of cash? Just credit cards? Maybe traveler's checks? I'm John Geiger. Being just a bit nosy, I suspect this is the land and the book. But trust me, that has everything to do with today's broadcast. Uh, more specifically, Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up. But before we get to that, I want to pause and enjoy this Holy Land experience. It's a testimony from somebody who has traveled over to Israel, processed the sights, the sounds, and even the smells. And now brings us this perspective. Let's listen.
0: Hello, my name's Deborah, and this is my Holy Land experience. Um, Dr. Dyer has really shown us that the Jewish people are God's chosen people. And when we went into the Holocaust Museum, it was very, very moving, it brought me to
2: tears. There was this picture. Of this Jewish man and these German soldiers were all around
0: him and they were cutting pieces of his beard off as souvenirs and it was just a horrible sight to see and it really moved and um, it was an experience I'll never forget
1: very very moving thank you for sharing that and appreciate your transparency and the courage it took to share that. You know, when I travel, and sometimes it's to the Holy Land, uh, I have a way of traveling light. That is to say, I, I take my wallet, take everything out of it, except just a couple of bucks and one credit card. No driver's license, nothing at all like that. But Charlie, you have suggested that God's promises to the Old Testament King David are sort of like traveler's checks,
0: yeah, and uh, hopefully this will make sense to everybody else too, especially those who've traveled overseas, because one problem international travelers face is how to carry their money safely. You know, Cash is king in many parts of the world, and American dollars are just as welcome as the local currency. But pickpockets also prowl the streets looking for gawking tourists with bulging wallets, and if they steal your cash, it's gone for good. That's why a number of companies offer traveler's checks, They're more cumbersome to use, and not every store will accept them. But as the companies claim, traveler's checks can be replaced if they're lost or stolen because they're uniquely connected to the one who purchased them. Cash can be spent by anyone, but traveler's checks must be endorsed by their owner. And tucked among the messianic prophecies of the Bible are three I want to explore today. And what's interesting is that the first functions like prophetic cash, seemingly able to be spent by any number of people who might lay claim to it but the next two are prophetic traveler's checks that guard against fraudulent claims. That might sound confusing, so let's journey first to Lower Egypt and watch the elderly patriarch Jacob as he shares his final blessing with his son. This prophecy, if you will, is handed out in cash. In Genesis 49, the elderly Jacob gathers his sons together to receive his patriarchal blessing. And with a prophetic insight given to him by God, Jacob blesses not only his sons, but also the tribe that descended from each son. Yet as Jacob began, he faced a problem. Whom should he choose to lead this band of brothers? Reuben was the firstborn, but he fell into sexual immorality with his father's concubine and was disqualified from being the leader. We might expect Jacob's mantle to fall on one of the next two sons in line, Simeon and Levi but these two had conspired together to kill the men of Shechem. Jacob sadly recounts that their swords are weapons of violence, for they have killed men in their anger. Brothers who can't control their emotions don't make for good leaders. And that brought Jacob to his fourth-born son, Judah. With the disqualification of the oldest three, Jacob bestowed on Judah the mantle of leadership. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. The scepter, the ruler's staff, will rest on the tribe of Judah, and someone from this tribe will eventually rise to rule over the nations. But, like cash, this promise could potentially be claimed by anyone from that tribe. Can the recipient of God's royal promise be identified more specifically? He can, and that transition from cash to traveler's check takes place in the next two prophecies. So let's say goodbye to Jacob and return from Egypt to Jerusalem just after David has secured his kingdom. The wars David had to fight are over. He's now a king at peace who wants to honor the God of Israel by building him a temple. God doesn't let David claim that honor, but he does reward David's faithfulness with a series of promises found in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. These promises extend far beyond David's lifetime. Listen to the specifics of God's prophetic traveler's checks uniquely assigned to the house of David. God promised to make David's name great and to keep the nation secure throughout his days. So far, so good. These were specific traveler's checks made out in David's name. But God isn't done. In verse 11, God turned to David and said, The Lord will make a house for you. God first promised to raise up a son who would follow David on his throne. How could he be identified? He shall build a house for my name. When David's son Solomon built the temple, he was endorsing this traveler's check. God goes on to acknowledge that not all David's descendants, including Solomon, would be men of integrity. In fact, God says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. Solomon and the kings that followed did at times feel God's corrective punishment. But though they were chastised, God said he would never take away his promise to the line of David. Like traveler's checks, this divine promise could never be lost or stolen. My loving kindness shall not depart from him. The word God used is the Hebrew word hesed, which has the idea of loyal love or covenant faithfulness. God made a promise and David's line could depend on God to stand by it. But did this set of prophetic traveler's checks have any sort of expiration date? God's answer was clear. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God's general promise to the tribe of Judah was now specifically limited to David's descendants. His family alone had the right to rule. But three centuries later, God narrowed the prediction even more. And to view this final traveler's check, we need to travel five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Micah the prophet shared a final prophetic detail about this promised ruler. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." The king from the line of David who will become the ultimate ruler, the Messiah, will not only come from David's line, he will actually be born in David's hometown, and he will have existed from eternity past. From our vantage point, we can look at these prophetic traveler's checks and realize how easy God made it to verify the identity of anyone claiming to be their rightful owner. He had to be a descendant of the tribe of Judah, who could trace his lineage back to King David. He had to be born in Bethlehem and yet have existed from eternity past. And the only person whose signature matched the one on these prophetic traveler's checks is Jesus. They belong to him. Today's journey has taken us from Egypt all the way to Bethlehem and from the time of the patriarchs to the time of Jesus's birth. So what can we carry home from such a long prophetic journey? Maybe it's this. Through the centuries, God continued to hone and sharpen his prophetic promises. As the time for their fulfillment came closer, God gave additional details. He never contradicted his earlier promises, but he did clarify them. And he did this so that when the time of fulfillment arrived, the person cashing that prophetic traveler's check could be identified without any doubt. The one who arrived the first time in Bethlehem to fulfill these promises is the same one who's promised to return a second time to claim his throne. Are you ready for his return? You know, if you are not ready for his return,
1: did you know you could be ready today? You could be ready to meet God, could be forgiven of your sins, those selfish thoughts and words and actions that we're all guilty of. You could have that today, not a perfect life today, No, the bills will still be there. Those pesky relatives, they'll be there. The job you don't like, still there. But with Jesus in the picture, it's an all different picture. Why don't you pray with me if you'd like to receive Jesus right now? Lord, I confess that I have done wrong. I want to be forgiven. I want Jesus in my life as the leader of my life, the forgiver of my sins. And I receive you now as best I can. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've got questions about that prayer, why not talk to a friend at 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM, or head online to chataboutjesus.org. Time is up here at The Land and the Book. I want to say thank you for listening. I'm John Geiger, inviting you back for another episode next week of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.